Hey guys, welcome back. So today I have a hot topic for you. We're going to do fever versus hyperthermia. All right, I don't know if anybody else listens to this. My kids are obsessed with it. It's a podcast that's called Smash Boom Best. And you take two things and you there's like two people who are debating basically and decide which one is the better object. So like maybe it's meteors versus black holes or mustard versus ketchup. Um, it just reminds me of like that kind of thing. So we're doing fear versus hyperthermia. Like, you know, which team would you be on? Anyways, so we're going to talk about, you know, how are they different? How to treat them? And are they any different in cats versus dogs? All right, so we're going to start out just in general, talking about what is a normal body temperature. So normal body temperature in general, just so you can kind of remember just one set of numbers, is typically 98.5 to 102.5 for our dogs and cats. Now there's definitely variation. Cats usually are a little bit warmer on the low side, 99.5. But that's fine. You know, like I said, in general, if you can remember those two numbers, 98.5 to 102.5, probably going to be within the right range. So how does a dog or cat's body know to keep their temperature between 98.5 and 102.5? Think about like snakes and lizards and stuff. Their body is not at 98.5 to 102.5. We call them cold-blooded, but their blood isn't actually cold. What it comes down to is that they have to be in an environment that will create them, their body to have that warmth. Like they have to regulate their body temperature based on being in the shade or being in the sun. Whereas our dogs and cats don't have to do that. They don't have to sit on a rock to become warmer. They don't have to go sit in the shade to become cooler necessarily. You know, they can maintain their body temperatures at this between 98.5 to 102.5. So the difference is, is that Mammals, you know, dogs, cats, they have a part of the brain called the hypothalamus. If you had listened to one of my previous ones, we were talking about hypothermia in our post-op patients. This is talking a lot about those things, right? The hypothalamus is a part of the brain that's basically like your thermostat. So if you were to think about your thermostat at your house, you know, you can change the temperature to go up. You can change the temperature to go down. You can set it so that it stays within this perfect environment all day long. You can change it so that you're cooler in the evening or warmer during the day. You know, you can regulate that as needed. Now, I don't know if anybody's had a nest. You know, we have the nest at work that was in the doctor's office and in the back. But, you know, the nest is usually supposed to be like this smart one, that it helps regulate the temperature based on the time of the day and how many people are in there. And so I think of our hypothalamus as very much like the nest. You know, it's not, it's supposed to be smart enough to be able to regulate these things on its own internal clock. So let's now dive deeper into hyperthermia. So hyper means high and thermia is our temperature. So high temperature. So hyperthermia, our technical term for this means high core temperature without a change in the set point of the hypothalamus. 
All right, that was a lot. So let's break this down. So what this means is there's a high core temperature. So our body or the dog's body's temperature is really high, but the hypothalamus or what we use as almost our thermostat in our body did not change. So if I put my thermostat at my house at, let's say, 70 degrees, and outside my house, it is 110 degrees, because that's what it'd be like in Southern California. So it's 110 degrees, right? Inside my house, it's going to be hot, but not because my thermostat changed. I didn't increase my thermostat. I did not make my house hotter. The outside environment made my house hotter. The sun shining on it made it hotter. You know, just being hot outside made it hotter. The brick made it hotter. But I did not change my thermostat. So that's what hyperthermia is, is that something else has made the inside really hot, but not because the brain made it so. So breaking this down even more, there's lots of things that this results from. So one of the things is that it's because of like an increase or an unregulated heat gain or heat production, meaning that something is causing the body to produce a lot of heat. This is generally like with seizures. Seizures are very common to do this. Their body is tremoring so hard, their muscles are working on overtime, and that is creating a lot of heat inside the body. And that's not that their brain is making them create a lot of heat. I mean, technically it could be from a brain tumor that they're having seizures, but it's not because the thermostat of their brain is being changed. Their thermostat of their brain is the same and their body is creating a lot of heat. This can also be from hyperthyroidism. So hyperthyroidism can cause cats to be like really hot as well. It can be from an impaired heat loss. So that means like heat stroke. So you have dogs and cats that are left in cars or a cat that's in a dryer, the the external temperature, so like the temperature outside my house, is much, much hotter than the patient or what's in my house. You know, the temperature of that dryer is much hotter than the patient is, so much hotter than that cat is, where the temperature of the car is much hotter than the dog is. And so they cannot lose heat because usually heat's going to go where there's not a lot of heat and wants to move to to colder areas. And so that way, even if a dog is panting or do whatever they need to do to try to lose heat, they cannot lose that heat because they are what is the colder object. So they gain more heat. So for these pets, often their temperature is above 106 degrees I mean, it can for sure be lower than that. Like you can have heat strokes that are, or at least leading into a heat stroke, that's 104 or 105. But in general, that's kind of a good way to tell the difference between hyperthermia and a fever because hyperthermia, they get really, really hot because typically the outside temperature is really hot. I mean, I've had a dog who had had seizures and his temperature was over 110. That's as high as the thermometer would read. So we have no idea how hot he actually was, but over 110. You know, I've definitely had some dogs who were left in cars that were over 110 degrees. You know, so they're usually very, very hot. 
And another key factor to this is typically these are the animals that are panting. You know, these dogs are panting because they cannot lose enough heat, and so they're trying to lose as much heat as possible. These cats are panting because they were stuck in a dryer and couldn't lose their heat. Or the dogs that are having seizures, you see them panting excessively afterwards. And usually that's a good indication that this is a hyperthermia, not necessarily a fever. So how do we treat these guys? So this is kind of, I know I talked about this before when we talked about our post-op patients, but our intra-op patients, you know, but the big thing with these guys is we need to bring their temperature down in a controlled manner. So when we do that, we do not want to put wet towels on them. Um, we already talked about this in our other episode, but basically, you know, they cannot get enough hot air off of them. If you put cold towels over them, that actually traps heat in. And then we don't want to alcohol the pads because that actually can make it to where they it just like vasoconstricts or creates their blood vessels to become really small. And that's not really going to help matters either. But cold water baths are good. You can put them into the sink, run cold water over them, and then you can lightly dry them off, but don't put a towel over them again. You can use fans. You can put ice packs in their oxygen mask. That's really good for especially those dogs that need oxygen or those cats that need oxygen to just put an ice pack in there with them. Or you can also put them on IV fluids. You could wrap the IV fluids around the ice pack. That's fine as well. But all of those things are going to help them just try to cool down. We don't want them to cool down too much, though. We want to make sure by the time we've gotten to about 103.5 that we've taken off all of those cooling mechanisms. So that way we don't overly cool them because their body should be able to cool down the rest of the way after that. So like I said, we got to be very controlled about it so then we don't make them hypothermic. All right, so that's kind of our hyperthermia. I know I kind of talked a bit about that on the other podcast, so I'm not going to go into huge amounts of detail. You can also listen to that on, I believe it was the last podcast. So now we're going to talk about team fever. So fever is also called pyrexia um, because pyro is fire, right? So this means that they're really hot. So when I think about pyrexia or a fever, you know, the definition of this is that it results from a change in the set point of the hypothalamus due to endogenous and exogenous pyrenogens leading to heat production and conservation. All right, everybody got that? We're good? I don't have to explain it? No, that, that's a lot, right? So what this means is that the hypothalamus or our thermostat is changed at this point. Something had to change it, but it's either due to something internally or something that's like foreign to that, that body. So it leads to that heat production and conserves that heat as well. So the best way to think about this is remember what I was talking about the nest. I hope Mark isn't listening. If you wanted to change the temperature inside your house, but you had the nest and there's no way, like let's say it's in a lockbox or something, there's no way that you can get to it. You could put an ice pack up to the nest and make the temperature think that, like the, the nest thinks that the temperature has dropped in the house and it has become colder. And so now the heat will turn on and make the house hotter. 
So you have now changed that thermostat in order to make the house hotter by presenting it with something to make it think that it's too cold, right? So now the thermostat has changed and now our house is hotter. So that's what a fever is. Hyperthermia, the thermostat never changed. There was something externally that made us too hot. Or with pyrexia or fever, our thermostat does change and that changes the temperature of the house. Hopefully that makes sense. Let me know if it doesn't. I'm happy to explain it more. But essentially, like another way to look at this is it's a regulated hyperthermia. Our body is regulating itself to make itself hotter. So what are some of the things that cause this? You know, in, in our hyperthermia, we talked about things like seizures and heat stroke, things like that. Now, I'd mentioned in the definition that there are endogenous and exogenous pyrinogens. Pyrinogens just means that there is a molecule or something that is making it hotter, pyro. And then exogenous is usually from something that was not created from the body. It's still inside the body, but it's not created from the body. So some of those things are going to be like toxins from bacteria. Think about our dogs and cats who have pyometras or pneumonia or abscesses. They have a fever, right? And a lot of times that's from the toxins that are creating things to tell your hypothalamus or your thermostat to become hotter. Viruses do this as well. Um, neoplasia, so cancer cells do this, and medications can do this. Uh, one, of the, one of the medications we had just talked about earlier was amphetamine toxicities. That one can definitely do it. That can make your hypothalamus change to create a hotter body. The next things are going to be endogenous pyrogenogens. These are things that your body creates. So these are things, if anybody cares about the terms, they're called cytokines. Uh, they're like the interferons, interleukins, tumor necrosis factors. But essentially, all you need to know is that these cytokines, or little molecules, create something called prostaglandins. Prostaglandins are what actually goes to the hypothalamus and makes the hypothalamus change the temperature or change the thermostat. The prostaglandins are going to be important in just a minute, so just remember that name. These cytokines, little proteins of your body make prostaglandins. Prostaglandins are like the ice pack that goes over and changes the temperature of the thermostat. These animals usually don't have a really high temperature. Like That's one good way that we can kind of tell between hyperthermia and pyrexia or fever is that their temperatures are usually somewhere between like 103 to 106. Can they go higher than that? Sure, absolutely. But it's not as common. Most of the time we're going to see them within that range. These pa patients are usually like more lethargic and not really panting because their body doesn't think that it's that hot actually because remember their thermostat has changed. So they think that they are normal temperature or cold, even though they might be hotter to us. Now, one of the interesting things is what causes fevers or pyrexias in dogs versus cats. 
So if anybody has ever heard us talk about fever of unknown origins, or an FUO, usually that means that the patient has a fever, and we don't know why. You know, There could be thousands and thousands of different causes. Anything that can cause infection or inflammation or cancer can cause a fever. So if you have a animal who comes in with a really bad swelling on their on their ankle, you know, on their tarsus is what the ankle is called. But let's say they have a really bad uh, swelling there. That could cause enough inflammation to cause a fever. You could have the abscesses that there's just so much pus underneath there that all of that bacteria is now creating the fever or cancers. There might be a patient who has lymphoma you know, this could be cancers inside the body and you, there's no way you would know on the outside and those can still cause a fever. Even other infectious disease things like salmon fever, you know, salmon toxicity, we've talked about that before, that can cause a fever because of that infectious process that's happening. So any of those things can cause fevers. But in dogs, the most likely cause is usually going to be something that's a non-infectious inflammatory disease. Think of things like autoimmune disorders. So non-infectious, meaning we don't have bacteria or any viruses that are involved, and something that's going to cause a lot of inflammation. So autoimmune disorders are usually the first ones to do those for dogs. So things like um, ITP, We've talked about those before, IMHA, we've talked about those before. Those can cause an autoimmune disorder that then can cause these fevers. The next most common thing in dogs is usually infectious, so those bacterial and viral infections. And then last thing is something cancerous. So all cancers can cause a fever, no matter what the cancer is, can cause fevers. In cats, though, they're a little bit different. In cats, they're most likely going to be something infectious. So it's usually going to be some abscess or bacterial infection or viral infection that's going to cause these. Then next most likely is going to be our non-infectious inflammatory diseases. You know, like I said, some sort of inflammation that's not due to an infection or some sort of autoimmune disorder. And then lastly is going to be those cancer type things in cats as well. So that that changes the way that we're going to treat each one of these. You know, for cats, we're most likely going to be giving them antibiotics if we don't know what's causing it because of the fact that it's most likely going to be infectious. Versus in a dog, like it's most likely to be some sort of autoimmune disorder. So we might end up choosing either a steroid or an anti-inflammatory to help with theirs instead. But some of the things to know about like how to treat them in the clinic is, I think, really important because we feel so bad for these cats and dogs, right? They're just, they look so sad. They're super lethargic. They're dumpy. They don't want to eat. They don't want to drink. They don't want to go outside. They don't want to move. I mean, I could definitely um, feel their pain. You know, when I had a fever before, like I felt terrible. I don't want to move. I don't want to do anything. Like my joints hurt. Just like a little old man. I just I just don't want to do anything. And they look like that, right? Like they look like a poor little old creature that just doesn't want to move. So we feel so bad for them when they have a fever. But if they don't have hyperthermia and they have 
a fever, a true fever or pyrexia, then we need to do some things first before we actually treat it. First of all, we don't need to treat all the fevers immediately. If they have a an elevated temperature, they're at 104, then we need to start looking for what the potential cause is. You know, if we can treat whatever the cause of it is, then we're then that will be better for the patient. So let's talk about what some of the things can happen if we bring down a fever. So we just talked about how the hypothalamus, it is what regulates our body temperature, right? It regulates the cat and dog's body temperature. I'd already talked about if I put an ice pack next to that thermostat, the thermostat thinks that it's cold in the house, and now the heater turns on and it heats up the house. So let's say that I put more ice packs by there. I just keep putting more and more ice packs. I grab ice, like I have all sorts of things surrounding this thermostat. It drops the temperature down way low. The body's response is that it's going to make it even hotter in that house. So we're trying to forcefully bring down this fever, but instead it's really just raising the core temperature of that pet's body. So we're doing the exact opposite. If you bring attempt to bring the pet's temperature down, the body or the hypothalamus will respond by making that core temperature even higher. So now instead of it being set at 103 degrees, which it was before, it is now going to push itself up to 105 degrees and 107 degrees to try to help compensate for what we're doing externally. Doing these things can actually even potentially like trigger a seizure to happen because the body keeps thinking that it needs to rise and rise and rise. You know, the temperature needs to rise and then eventually it gets so hot that it will create a seizure. And then the other thing is we have to consider like, why is the body doing this? Why is the body creating a fever? And how does, like, does this help fight off disease? Which it does. They've actually done so many studies on this, but we'll talk about some of the ways that a fever actually helps the body. One of the things is it helps increase enzymes. So enzymes are in your body and they work to do things. They break things down, they make things. Um, so maybe most of the time they're breaking things down, but they're working faster and they work harder when they're at higher temperatures. So if we need enzymes to break down some of these infectious diseases, then we need them to work harder and work faster. So the body temperature increase helps those enzymes work. It also increases the performance of the immune cells. So our immune cells are going to be like our white blood cells. They work better when they're at warmer temperatures. This also puts stress on the pathogens. Bacteria and viruses do not like being in hot environments. You know, that's a lot of the reason why we cook our food, right? You put your food on the stove, you cook it, so that, that way we can decrease as many things of bacteria as possible. And that's what our body is doing, or that's what the dog and cat's body is doing by producing a fever, is it is putting more stress on those pathogens to try to help kill them off better. It also helps produce protective proteins. So there's lots of proteins in our body, and some of them are used to be able to help protect our organs, our blood vessels, and that fever helps them do that. It produces more of those to help protect us. 
It also reduces the dog and cat's appetite and our appetite as well, right? Like when you have a fever, you don't want to eat. But that's actually, again, another mechanism to try to help your body. So if you don't have as much energy providing to the pathogens, if I'm not eating as much food, I'm not getting as much energy, and that makes it so that the pathogens don't have that energy as well. And again, helps us kill off the pathogen faster. There have also been lots of studies that have done that have shown that by decreasing that fever, that you can delay recovery and increase the amount of hospitalization that is needed. So these are a lot of um, human studies because of the fact that we've just had so many human pathogens and there's lots of research that's done in it. But I still think that they're all really interesting and all very relatable to what we do now. So there was one study that was done about sepsis in Sweden. So sepsis means that you have infection or bacteria basically in your bloodstream. You are very sick. And these patients showed that they have really high fevers. But the patients who had fevers were more likely to survive. And the ones with the highest fevers had the best survival rates. The ones who were who had normal temperatures were more likely to die, unfortunately. So they found, like that was this was a big study that they had done, because they found that the fever was really helpful for trying to help the body to overcome that sepsis. A newer study done about COVID was done in the UK. They did it about COVID pneumonia, which we know pneumonias a lot of times will have fevers associated with them. But it found that those with the highest temperatures had the leading highest rates of survival. So those with the highest temperature were more likely to survive than those with a lower or normal temperature. And then a third interesting study, this one was done earlier, was done in 2013, which showed patients with meningitis. Meningitis is usually like an inflammation or an infection of your cerebral spinal fluid, so your CSF fluid, that goes around your spine and around your brain. What they did is that they looked at using some sort of anti-inflammatory, so a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory. That just means that it's something that brings down inflammation that's not a steroid. So our NSAIDs are anti-inflammatories. That they used those to try to help bring down those patients' fevers who had meningitis. And they also used an external cooling mechanism, like a cold water bath, fans, cold IV fluids, things like that, to try to help bring down their fevers as well. And they checked to see like who was most likely to survive. Spoiler alert, um, they ended up having to stop this study early because it was so detrimental. So they found that with NSAIDs, it didn't really increase their survival time. It wasn't like super detrimental as long as those patients were well hydrated. But those that they used external cooling devices on cold water baths and stuff, those had a higher mortality rate, meaning they were more likely to die than those who had a fever. So, you know, all of these things we can just like look at, all this research we can look at to point us to the fact that we don't have to bring down everybody's fever. It is okay to have a fever. Ideally, we want to try to find the reason for the fever, but it is okay. Our body is doing that for a reason. Now, when is it going to be detrimental not to treat that fever? If that pet is at 105.8 and climbing, 
you know, it's at 105.8, we probably need to start doing some treatment to make sure that they don't become even more hyperthermic. Really high hyperthermias can cause seizures. You know, they can cause tremors, they can cause seizures. We don't want to get to that point. So, you know, if it's at 104, 105, we're not going to be terribly concerned. But if we're getting up to that like 105.8, then yeah, we're probably going to want to start intervening to make sure that we're not going to get any higher. So what are those things that we can do to bring down those fevers? Well, it's a lot of the same things that we do for hyperthermia. You know, you can put an ice pack in in the oxygen cage with them, let's say if they have um, pneumonia, or you can rinse them with cold water. Don't put a towel over them, just rinse them with cold water. You can put an ice pack around their IV fluids. You know, these are all fine things. Again, we want to try to not bring them down to normal though. We just need to bring their temperature down to where it is not at the scary 105.8 that could potentially cause seizures. So trying to get them lower, maybe like around 104-ish. So we just try to keep them in a, a good zone to where their body can continue to work. It can help, the fever can help them try to fight off whatever it is that's going on, but we don't cause any seizures to occur. One question is always about anti-inflammatories. Can we give the anti-inflammatories, the NSAIDs? So as long as the patient is hydrated and it won't cause any harm, then we can. And the reason why is because if they're not hydrated enough, it can actually cause kidney failure or liver failure, which was going to be even worse, right? The dog's now getting over pneumonia. We give it an anti-inflammatory too soon, and now the dog goes into kidney failure. It can't fight off both things at the same time. So ideally, we want to use them diligently, making sure that they're already hydrated if that's the case. The other thing, though, about NSAIDs is how do they work, right? How is this bringing down the fever? Like most people know Motrin as they're like, well, it just brings down inflammation, right? So remember I told you to remember a term earlier called prostaglandins. Okay, so NSAIDs or anti-inflammatories block the production of prostaglandins. If you remember, prostaglandins go to our hypothalamus or basically our thermostat and tell it to go up. It is like the ice pack that I'm putting in front of the nest to tell it that it's that it's too cold in this house, and then the thermostat raises the temperature. So NSAIDs block that production or block that ice pack from being able to be by the nest so that our thermostat does not change. You'll hear things about like COX inhibitors and stuff that just basically makes the prostaglandin, but um, that's the essentials of it, is that the prostaglandins are not made and therefore our thermostat cannot change. All right, now we talked about like, is it harmful to have a fever? You know, yes, like I said, there are cases that it can be. Uh, it can increase the body temperature to put too much stress on the rest of the healthy cells. You know, it's ideally supposed to put stress on the pathogens, but even things like we talk about like antibiotics, you know, antibiotics were killing off bad bacteria, but we're also killing off good bacteria as well. There's no way for us to be able to just say, okay, bad bacteria, I'm only going to kill you off. Like it's going to kill the bad bacteria and the good bacteria off. 
This is the same thing with fevers. Like we're putting a lot of stress on the pathogens with fevers, but we're also putting a lot of stress on healthy cells with the fevers. So that's what we need this balance of between, you know, what a fever should be and not getting up to 105.8 so that we can, can have this happy balance. And also, like I said before, too high of a fever can also cause seizures as well. So we want to try to make sure we don't have seizures that occur by keeping that temperature, again, at some healthy range, somewhere between helping the body and not causing any seizures. All right, I think that is enough about fevers versus hyperthermia. Which team did you pick? Okay, well, if anybody's on Smash Boom Best, you'll understand, but it might just be me. That's okay. All right, funny story. So I went to this jump place today. Oh, first of all, hold on. I'm going to, before that, I'm going to just mention that I, um, if I said anything wrong, I'm very sorry. If I was very sniffly today, I'm very sorry. I'm actually have been sick all week and I've just been getting over it these last two days. So that's, uh, I'm sorry if that's in the background there, but for my funny story, so I went to the jump place today, the trampoline park with my kids because they really wanted to go. They've been wanting to go all weekend, but I was just so sick. I just could not go. And then, so finally today, my wife was off and I was like, okay, I can handle going with you guys because I have somebody else to help watch the kids as well. You know, so that way we're not like split trying to find the kids. And I'm just like, don't feel well. We can do this together. So go to this trampoline park and I'm just... Talking to my wife, watching the kids at first, there's like a ton of people there because it's President's Day weekend and all of the kids are off and everybody's like, what are we going to do? And everybody's like, well, we're going to go to the jump place because it's too cold outside to do anything outside. So everybody went to the trampoline park. So it was so packed. But we're watching the kids and talking and stuff. And then my son was like, you know, dad, I want you to come like do stuff with me. And I was like, dude, like there are a thousand kids here. Like, can't you find somebody else to do stuff with? He's like, no, I want to, you know, do this obstacle course with you. And I was like, fine. I think I'm okay enough to like not cough while I'm trying to do this obstacle course. So we go through, we do the obstacle course. Everything goes fine. I didn't cough or anything during it. And then afterwards, I like start walking. And I don't know what I did, but I totally jacked up my ankle. And I was like, oh man, I'm so old. <laughs> I can't get through this obstacle course without coughing or, you know, jacking up my ankle. Ugh, it was terrible. Anyways, I also have like a cool animal story for you. So I learned today that, did you know that they figure out the age of a whale by looking at the wax in its ears? Isn't that crazy? So they like look for these rings, just like a tree, right? So they, they have like a dark ring and a light ring. And that pair is the age of one year. So one light ring, one dark ring equals one year of that whale. But they're like, just take the earwax out and, and cut it up and look at that to be able to figure out how old it is. The other thing is they like test chemicals in each one of those layers and then they can tell like where that whale had been because um, they're looking for like different amounts of mercury and all these other different chemicals that are in there. They can tell like when the age of the whale was that it sexually matured. Um, oh, there was so many things. And they have like a whole museum that's dedicated to this. Super crazy. All right. Anyways, so next week we're going to be doing 
a topic that a couple people have asked me about so far. So it is, what does blood work show you? Somebody tell Jenny, please, because she's going to want to hear this because she asks me all the time about blood work. So this is going to go over kind of like some of the things that we look for, you know, what things kind of are grouped together. What are some things that you should look for when you're looking for like hospitalized patients? Um, And what are the things that we are not looking for in blood work? So you can talk about that next week. And then I believe the next week after that, I'm going to do meningitis. All right, guys, as always, if you have questions, please come talk to me. If you have suggestions, email me, text me, find me in the hall, wherever. Just let me know what your topics are. I have a whole running list and I'm happy to go over them for you. All right. Thanks, guys.